<clears throat> yeah, all right. I'm all set in the cockpit. <laughs> How about you, Reg? You ready to go? Cool. Let me, <clears throat> let me just get the instrument ready. <clears throat> yeah, that's my big exercise. That's my big voice exercise. <clears throat> all right, sir. Are we ready to go? Yeah, I like where the levels are. I think the I like I like the timber of my voice today. It sounds uh, it sounds pretty good. I think we'll my voice. I think I'll keep it. <laughs> All right, you ready to go? All right, keep the levels right there, sir. I'll give you the uh, the three S's and the countdown. You give me the music. I'll give you a podcast. How's that? All right, put it in the books. Number two ninety two nine zero. Wow, not too shabby, huh? Or getting close to 300. I don't know what that means, Reg, but um, it's it's there. I guess five. I guess 500's out there, too, somewhere, right? It just takes time. <laughs> All right, here we go. Got it? All set? Okay, here we go. Last time you sort of jumped the gun. Let me uh, introduce the song. Last week you jumped the gun. You hit the music too early. Look, I know I know we're all excited in anticipation of the podcast to start, but just let's make sure we do it right. Thankfully, no one hears this, right? They just hear it when that music starts, but you know, when I introduce it, thankfully, they don't hear all this the sausage being made. I don't think anybody would listen <laughs> if they knew what goes on behind the scenes here. Oh, just make sure no one ever hears it. All right, here we go. Ready? I'm ready. You're ready. Here we go. Star, smile, strong. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. Whoa. What? <laughs> Jeez. What are you doing, man? You had, you had hours to just cue that up correctly. <laughs> okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. Guess what? We're there, too. That it only makes sense, doesn't it? But listening, of course, is not your only obligation. It's your job to get out there and spread the word. So tell a friend, tell a family member, tell anybody you know who listens to podcasts that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. And why the heck isn't it theirs too? So send them a link and send them a message. Let them know. Your loyalty, devotion, and of course, that extra effort around the holiday season it just it makes your heart as big as the Grinch at the end of this uh, the end of the story, right? It bursts, it breaks. Tis the season to be giving, right? Your loyalty and devotion always appreciated. If you like what you hear, don't forget go to wgnradio.com, hit the podcast section, hit the prompt for this podcast, and you will find all previous two hundred eighty nine episodes. They're all there, hopefully. Just keep scrolling down. You keep reading, and then it says load more. Just keep loading more. It always pays to know where we were 
so you understand where we're going. Welcome to 290, episode 290. Wow. And as I've said on many occasions, just I think even last podcast or a couple of podcasts before, uh, it's always pays to do your homework and go back into those vaults and listen to former podcasts from two weeks ago, from two months ago, from two years ago. Even though we've been doing this for five years, go back five if you want. Go back to episode one if it's still in there. Dust off the du- you know, wipe the dust off of that one. The first podcast, wow. But uh, but yeah, it pays. And this week again, it will have paid for you to have listened just a, just a few weeks ago, around Thanksgiving week. I was talking about the Beatles documentary that was premiering on Disney Plus, three straight nights, the premiere episodes for the three parts, and now it's available for your viewing pleasure at your whim. And uh, But at that time, the world had been waiting several years. Uh, director Peter Jackson started working on this almost four years ago. It was delayed a year, supposed to be at theaters. as just maybe, what, maybe a two, two-and-a-half-hour movie at theaters, in September of 2020, of course, COVID delayed that and uh, gave Peter Jackson a little more time, and he certainly put that extra time to good use. Over the last couple of weeks, almost three weeks or so, two and a half since the Get Back documentary premiered on Disney+, Plus, uh, I was giving you a little preview of it a few weeks ago, the week of... Thanksgiving, when it was premiering, it premiered actually on Thanksgiving evening and the next two days, Friday and Saturday. Uh, So I give you a little preview. But since then, a lot of people have been asking me what I thought of it, both uh, in person, friends of mine, just uh, knowing that I'm a big Beatle fan, as well as professionally, a lot of people on my Facebook page asking me. I talked about a little bit. On WGN Radio, the day after the first episode, I didn't see all three yet, just the first episode, I was on the day after Thanksgiving and uh, talked a little bit about it, but uh, it it certainly uh, deserves and demands a lot more than just a few minutes to discuss it, uh, because uh, there's a lot there. And, uh, and, I really, I, and, I, and I really want to share my views on it, so hopefully... Uh, you have had a chance to watch it now. That's one reason why I waited to give my review. I've uh, only watched it one time through, and I watched it each night in its entirety. And then I've just kind of reflected on it and tried to sink it in. And I'm going to watch it again, I believe, in the next uh, you know week or so, letting it sit for a while. And just what I wanted to see what my first impressions were without overloading on it. After just watching it in real time, well, I guess whatever real time means in, uh, in the streaming world, uh, but at least on the days that it premiered, I probably wasn't watching it at the same time everyone else was. Everybody could watch it anytime they wanted. I believe that they... They started posting the new episodes in, in, in the United States here at least like at 2 in the morning. So, you know, 
you could, if you wanted to watch it first thing, you could really get a head start on the whole world, I guess. But I didn't do that. I wasn't that crazy about, uh, to do it. But, uh, but certainly watch it each day. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. But as I said, I wanted to sit down. I wanted to digest it a little. I wanted to think about it. I wanted to see what what really stuck out in my mind with a little time pass. That's how you, you know, when you're in the moment, so much just overwhelms you. You know, when you go to a concert or you go to, uh, if you read a book or if you go to a, a sporting event or whatever event that really touches you. Uh, you know, when you're in the moment experiencing it, almost every little detail uh, is uh, is amplified and elevated in your mind in your in your mind's eye. And then, uh, with time, uh, those things that really did make an impact and an influence they stay with you. And some of the other things that you may at one time thought were oh my gosh moments, goosebump moments, as I like to call them, um, maybe they weren't as much. And so I'd like to let all of that initial euphoria. Uh, bask a while. It's fun to bask in that euphoria. But then I also like to let it uh, let it settle for a while and then see what, what sticks around. Now, I've been reviewing music and movies and theater and all types of entertainment for most of my career, dating back into my early 20s when I first started writing a uh, a music column when I was still in college for a, for a newspaper. So I've been doing this as a job or professionally, at least sharing my views with the public, anybody who would see it, uh, for quite a while now. And one of the advantage and disadvantages is that many times you can sit with something that you are supposed to review, and you can really, as I said before, let it, let it, hit you and and uh, but also stick with you and see what really did make a uh, a difference for you after a little time passes a lot of times you don't have that advantage if you are review- reviewing a movie or a, a play and it's due the next day because of deadlines it, it, it just premiered and and then of course people want to hear what it was like on opening, you know, on opening night, the next day, especially if there's, it's a big project, a big headline, you know, anticipation kind of a movie or film or an album, uh, you know, obviously newspapers or whatever medium it is, magazines, television, wants, radio wants to get that news out there. Uh, and so you don't have that advantage of letting it sit with you for a while. Uh, and so many times I've gone back and read a lot of the reviews that I've written on a lot of different things, and I could see that uh, I, I, what I'm really happy about, and I, I've gone back over the years and read things that I wrote 30-some years ago as, a, as, a, as a, mere, a mere lad, if you will. And some of these things at the time uh, were new movies, new albums, new plays, whatever they were. And... Uh, I'm happy to say a lot of the stuff that I wrote about, uh, many of those things that I was very positive about and very excited about, I still watch or listen to or enjoy. And some of them, uh, I've gotten a different appreciation for them as time has gone on, which makes sense, because with time, you learn more. 
your your perspective changes on things you what may have been uh one aspect of a movie or a play or even an album that that never occurred to you may have new meaning for you years later because of your own experience and the own your own knowledge that you have accrued over time and so something that may have struck you at one time in your life still might strike you later but in a different way because you're different hopefully we all continue learning and evolving hopefully we're not the same person that we were when we were 15 or 10 or 20 or 30 or or whatever we're hopefully always adding new experience and new new knowledge to our lives and and maybe that helps hopefully to add new perspectives and uh and new viewpoints i wouldn't i i don't, I don't want to think that I thought the same thing when I was 10. Hopefully things have changed, uh, you know, uh, but maybe the core of them have, have remained the same, but your appreciation has changed. But I'm happy to say that there's some things that even at a young age, uh, I'd like to think that I had a little uh, interesting opinion or insight or perspective on it, and I'm like, you know what? Boy, I, 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 I nailed that back then. But then I'm like, oh, but you know what? If I were to rewrite that today or talk about that today, I would I would also say blank, blank, and blank, which I just I I wasn't able to either uh, recognize it because of my own limitations of my own sphere of knowledge at the time, or my own my own uh, ability to tap into what I know, maybe just about general things, knowledge about something that this work of art referred to that I didn't know about, which I later learned about. But what I, what I am kind of happy about is that a lot of the core aspects of something that, I've, that I liked way back when are still there. They're still relevant. And at the same time, uh, I've hopefully had, uh, have had a greater appreciation for these things. And as I said before, have, 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 come to look at them from from a different angle from a different perspective still liking them but liking them for different reasons as well as those initial ones too as i said though i, I go back and i'll and i'll look and i'll and, or, and there's sometimes i'll be like wow you know what i was so swept away in that moment uh i'll read a review of something that i wrote that i had to to turn over very quickly and i'll see that wow i i was swept away by that by, by the by, by my own excitement, or maybe the the anticipation that was that was around this release or or this movie at the time, the the hype that was around, you you get caught up in that. We're only human, right? Um, and sometimes, you know, as much as you try to be objective, uh, and I've said this so many times, as much as you try to be objective your subjectivity has to come in because you're a human being. I always like to say I write from an a from a uh an objectively subjective way. I do try to look at both sides. I know that I can't help but let my own opinion or my own likes and dislikes, my own subjectivity if you will, creep in. But at the same time, my role as a journalist, my role as a reviewer is to be objective and to look at it from a dispassionate standpoint. And uh, that's not an easy thing to do. Now, sadly, I have to say that the if, there, if, it, if it is an art, and I believe it can be if it's done correctly, the art of reviewing 
sadly, has been greatly diminished and greatly diluted over the last 20 years or so, uh, especially with the advent and the popularity of the Internet. Early on, when when uh, blogs started, uh, everyone became a reviewer, and 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 you know, there's uh, don't get me wrong, there's there's no there's no state sanctioned <laughs> test and license that one gets for being a professional reviewer. Uh, what there is is somebody that is a journalist that that does go through training to learn how to write cohesively and concisely and interestingly and engagingly and compellingly and to offer your opinion that is backed up with knowledge and reference and fact as well as your own passion. And uh, and there is a set of rules, and there is a way to write something and to be critical. You can still be critical of something and still like something. Sadly, in the last 20 years, uh, our society as well as our, as our, as our journalism uh, has been diluted greatly. Because, first of all, in today's world, you really, if you say anything bad about somebody, you're viewed as, as being a bully. That's not the idea. I mean, there's some things that, aren't just, that are just not good. And there's nothing wrong with pointing that out. But in today's society, we can't really do that, sadly. So, I mean, I don't even know what the, what the role of a of a movie reviewer or a, or a record reviewer uh, is today because I don't know if the average person really, really uses it as any kind of a, as a, as a signpost for them uh, to go see a movie or not because there are opinions everywhere now. There's an opinion on everything, everywhere, anytime you want it. So that immediately dilutes the role of the established "quote unquote" reviewer um, in today's world, for instance, uh, you know, I don't know uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, probably the most well-known uh, movie reviewers of the last thirty or forty years in terms of popular of populist reviewers because they're TV shows. But I don't even, but you know, and they, and, and they used to be able to make or break a film. And, uh, you know, in many years ago on Broadway, uh, there were some, there were some uh, writers, Frank Rich in films, Pauline Kael. They, they, some of these people, they wrote for the New York Times and the New Yorker, things like that, respected, um, respected publications, periodicals, newspapers. They could make or break a play. I mean, you know, I mean, a movie maybe not so much because it, they could help a movie, and sometimes they could destroy a movie too, uh, but not as easily. But my gosh, uh, on Broadway, a bad a bad review can kill a Broadway show overnight. Still can. 
But it's, but if you, but I just don't, I don't think that that uh, that the that, that sadly the reviews anymore really carry that kind of weight, that uh, that influence or that punch because reviews at the end of the day are opinions, and we are inundated with opinions, and some are well crafted and well researched and uh, and 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 filled with real knowledge, and some. And some opinions are completely based on rumor, innuendo, and not a shred of fact or evidence. And we, and they're all in the kitty now. So, uh, sadly, what was once a profession and 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 a, I think a a, a respected profession. There were some very well known arts reviewers. Rex Reed was a film uh, reviewer. In New York, as I said, Roger Ebert and and um, and Gene Siskel, and as I said before, Pauline Kael. These were these were very well known, very well respected people. They weren't always right. They loved movies that no one liked, and they hated movies everybody loved. But you had to respect their opinions, and if you if you appreciated good writing. You still read them, even though if you didn't disagree, even if you didn't agree with them, you enjoyed reading what they had to say and how they said it. And sadly, that is an art that is that's no longer around very much, and it's certainly not recognized or appreciated because we are just inundated with so much opinion on everything that it all just becomes a blur. And that that is one aspect of journalism that sadly has has gone away and 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 journalism in in general someone that like myself who who chose journalism and broadcasting as a career you know 30 some years ago it was a vibrant and uh it was uh, it was a it was a respected it was a very competitive and it was fun and it was difficult but it also felt like you were doing something, like you were adding to the public discussion. And sadly, that has all diminished. The Internet completely obliterated that. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily, it's not, there's nothing wrong with everybody giving their opinion on something. I, I, I have nothing against that. I'm not against freedom of speech. But sadly, there's a lot of, as we've seen in the last several years, a lot of mis- or disinformation that has overcome so much and then now has been taken as journalism or fact. The journalism, sadly, what was once a very um, respected profession is, is, is almost, is, 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 it's, it's hanging on by, by, by the skin of its teeth because the Internet has just allowed everyone and uh, to to get into the game but they're not playing by the old rules and so we're not getting a lot of factual uh, information perfect example of this and I will talk about the Beatles believe me <laughs> but now that I've got on this subject I think it's worth talking about for a little while but a perfect example of what I'm talking about is recently here in the Chicago area a couple of weeks ago before Thanksgiving, there was a story that appeared on a website that uh, that said that the Chicago Bears 
coach had already been notified behind the scenes that week that after the Bears were playing on Thanksgiving Day and that he was told on Monday of that of Thanksgiving week that after the game on Thursday that he would be fired. And this became a national story. And the reporter was a respected reporter who had been who had worked at a newspaper for many years. Now he was working at a website. And you know the part of the web is urgency and speed. And it, it, getting the facts as important is not as important, sadly, as the speed and the views and the likes of you know the, the sending out something that whets people's appetites, that gets their that gets their attention, that gets them to click on. That's the goal now of web web journalism. A great film to watch about journalism. And maybe the last time it really counted. Go and watch the film All the President's Men with Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman about Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein when they were breaking the Watergate story. Not only is it a slice of history because it was it's based on a true story in the in the Watergate break in and and the reporting of it and and the cover-up and everything else. But it really does an excellent job of showing the inner workings of the way journalism used to work. And now that movie is kind of like a, a, a relic. But that, you will see the constant checking, the demand for the truth. A story will not be printed unless... It meets a certain level of, of, of criteria. And there are many times that, that Woodward and Bernstein go to Ben Bradley, who was played by Jason Robards in the film, the editor, managing editor of the newspaper, and they will say, look, we've got this story, and he will read it, and he would say, you don't have the story yet. You don't have a high enough or enough Validation. There's too much rumor here. No one, you know, someone has to go on the record, or someone has to, and one person is not enough. You need at least two sources, and they need to be at a certain level. That used to be the standard. You needed at least two corroborating um, people on a major story. You couldn't just run with what somebody thought or somebody heard or somebody said. That's not enough. I started my, my, my journalism training, actually, at a place called the City News Bureau here in Chicago. And, uh, and the old joke was, and many, many well-known journalists, Mike Royko, John Calloway, uh, got their starts there. And uh, the joke was always one of the, the gruff editors who I got a chance to work with briefly said, even if your mom tells you something, you got to get another source as well. <laughs> Today, that is not, that's not the case. 
if there's an interest if there's a story that that could be true and it will will get likes and views and clicks they will run it and they don't really care before there was really a it you know there was in the journalism business it was self-policed there were many unwritten rules but everyone played by them even though they were unwritten there was a sense of 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 professionalism and if you want to call it morality whatever but there was a real commitment by the people in it to make sure that they were getting the truth that they weren't spreading rumor or innuendo there was a commitment to the truth there was a commitment to breaking the news but you it it, it wasn't it wasn't done at the uh, you know at 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 the price of not being right you printed it printed it got in print when there was a genuine sense that this is validated the internet all rules are off it's dodge city some people say that's the the democracy the democ- you know democracy of of information I, I i don't think that i think we've we've lowered our standards in many ways we've we've obliterated our standards and as i said sadly i think journalism is in a uh is is a dying is a dying art and my point is this story about the bears coach turned out not to be true he was not fired after that game and but for four days that was the that was the thought that was the story people were clicking people were viewing people were talking about it Talking about it on TV, talking about it on sports radio, and this was the big scoop. Of course, the the Bears denied it. So much so, it became. It seemed like it was a. It was the. It was. It was just a matter of time. You know that he was going to fired on Thanksgiving. That Bears owners had to go in and talk to the players and tell them this is not true. They denied it, but the players didn't even believe their denials. The owners had to go in and talk to the players and tell them, look, this is not true. He's not getting fired on Thursday. They also added the caveat that we didn't say we're not going to fire him. We're just not firing him on Thursday. So keep playing. He might get fired at the end of the season, but he's not getting fired on on Thursday. So, of course, the journalist that that printed the story online uh, when Thursday came and went, he had to fess up and 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 take the heat. Now his uh, and he sort of did, but sort of didn't, because that's today's world. And now no one cares. No nobody's nobody's feet are put to the fire. In another time, this guy probably would have been fired from his job thirty years ago because he admitted basically that he only had one source. He didn't have at least two to validate this. He had one source. Anyone can make up anything. That's why the, 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 the fact is you, if you get one person that tells you, you have to find someone else and you feed them, you feed the second person that same list of facts that you have and say, do you have, based on your knowledge of this, will you say that this is true? And if that person says yes, okay, I've got two people saying the same thing now, that's enough for me to go on. But one person, anybody can make anything up. We know that. 
But in today's world, one person's enough. Sometimes nobody's enough. Just a rumor that you hear spreading becomes fact and gets reported. So here's a journalist who was, who was trained and schooled and practiced the correct journalistic principles. And when he went to the Internet side of the world, which is basically now, every, you know, that's the only place to be, really. Newspapers and magazines are a dying breed. So many journalists have either gotten out of journalism or if they haven't, they've gone to websites. And it's a different world there. Yes, there's a striving for the truth, but there's more of a striving for buzz and clicks and views and salacious headlines. And if you only have one source, ah, what's, do you trust that person? Oh, sure I do. Okay, then go with it. Well, that, well, this guy got burned. I don't know if it's going to affect his career or not. Who knows? I know that 20 or 30 years ago, he probably would have got fired or at least suspended. Or that story never would have ran because he didn't have what he needed. Watch all the president's men, regardless about you know if you like Nixon or not. That's not the point. Watch all your all the president's men and see the sausage being made of how reporters used to and suppose and still should, but don't anymore. Sadly, had to go the lengths they had to go to 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 get a story printed in the paper. Because there was a sanctity to that. There was a striving for the truth. As much as someone back then wanted to, to, to print this story because they knew it would be a blockbuster story, if they didn't feel that it was journalistically sound, they didn't run it. And wow, that's just not the case anymore. So anyway, that was the long way to say that I'd like to talk about the Beatles documentary. And give my review of it. How's that? <laughs> oh, I just gave you a nice little uh, little uh, lecture on, uh, on the state of journalism. I hope you enjoyed that. But I do. I hope, and I and I actually do hope you enjoyed it. And maybe it 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 shed some light. Maybe it will help you as you're going through and reading uh, either on your phone or on your computer all these different websites and all the information you take in. <sighs> Consider the source and ask the horse. He'll give you the answer that you endorse. <laughs> no, but consider the source and consider where you're getting it or where you're reading it from. And, 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 and you should wonder, boy, this story doesn't sound, this, this, this story sounds a little too, too crazy to be true. F- read it. See where, where the nuts and bolts are. Where are they getting this information from? Who's being quoted? Who isn't being quoted? And how many people are being quoted? That should all play a role as to if something, if you believe something or not, whether you trust something. That's what journalism was about. It was really about trust. Some of the greatest newspapers in this country, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, They were based on trust. You trusted the people in charge to do what they could do to make sure that what they were printing was the truth. And I believe that 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 doesn't 
exist anymore. And so that trust isn't there anymore. And so now we don't, we take, you know, and sadly we, we take everything with either, there's two ways to take it. You could take everything with a grain of salt, or you could take everything like it's the gospel truth. And that's any, any kind of, uh, one side or the other like that is a trouble. There's always a gray area folks. But that said, if even though the, the role of the reviewer may be diminished, I'm going to play the role of the reviewer right now and give you my thoughts and insights uh, about the Beatles Get Back documentary, which, as I said before, I had been waiting for. I'm a huge Beatle fan. Uh, I, have to be, I have to be honest here. Everybody says, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a great Beatle fan. I always have been. That's not the case with me. Not because I didn't like them or their music. I wasn't really exposed to the Beatles. I was an only child, so I didn't have younger brothers or sisters to help pass on musical knowledge to me. My parents were a little older, and I've I've mentioned this many a few times before. So they weren't really into rock and roll or things like that. They were around for it. They were there for Elvis, and they were there for the Beatles. But by that time, they were already a little older, and 40 or 50 years ago, adults were older than they were today. Today, adults act like kids. Back then, uh, you know, when if you were 25, you, you were already an adult, and you were expected to, to act like one. You, there, there was, you, weren't a, you weren't listening to music or going to concerts. That was done when you were a teenager. Now your job was to be mature and to raise your family and to go to work every day. There was, there, there was a whole different mindset. You know, today, being an adult is, 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 is a verb. You, you know, people say, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm acting, I'm adulting this week. <laughs> you know, it's an, ad, it's an adjective. It used to be a noun. You were an adult. Now people act like adults at certain times, and that's cool. So anyway, I didn't have anyone to pass on a lot of musical knowledge or what's good or what's bad. I had to discover a lot of this on my own. Now, because I was an only child, it did afford me a lot of time to put those 10,000 hours in that everybody talks about. Because I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't fighting with my brothers or sisters, or I wasn't, occupied with my brothers and sisters i was by myself i was in my own little world so i was able when i you know when i when i left my friends you know after school playing with my friends i came home and it was just me i mean i i interacted with my parents obviously but there were times i was just in my room and i had to i had to entertain myself and find my own interests that's why my that's why so many of my interests uh are are so passionate and so deep rooted in me because they were a part of me of my of my upbringing i grew up with them people say geez why are you so into this stuff but because these things were were like my friends they were like my family you know i i was you know, I, you know my my nickname is elton jim right i mean i've been an elton john fan since i was nine years old you know, there's you. You are influenced a lot when you're when you're that age, 
And so I was in my room listening to that music and reading the books and reading the magazines and reading the album covers and, and reading the lyrics and all that. I mean, I was consumed with it because that's, I had the time to do that. I wasn't, I wasn't playing with my brothers or sisters or fighting or whatever, or, or, or I couldn't play it in my room because my brother or sister did, was, was sharing a room with them. I don't want to hear that. I, I had my own domain. So that's why so many of the things that I am into, I'm into very deeply because, and intimately and passionately because in many ways they were my friends and my siblings and my family. I had time to invest in them and their arts. And whether it was sports or music or movies, whatever, whatever it was. But... um but I didn't have anyone to pass, for instance, the Beatles on to me. Now, I was born when the Beatles were still a group. But by the time I became aware, the Beatles had broken up. And by the time I started to really listen to the radio and, and understand, the Beatles had been broken up for a couple of years already. And and uh, I had heard of the Beatles, right? You just heard. I, I remember... I remember hearing the term John, Paul, George, and Ringo and not really knowing what it meant. I heard that phrase quite a bit. John, Paul, George, and Ringo. John, Paul, George, and Ringo. I, I still remember that phrase. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me, oh, wait a minute, that's the Beatles. Now, little did I know that I was... A Beatle fan long before I knew it, though. I say that I, I didn't, my, you know, my parents were older, and, my, and, and so no one passed this kind of musical knowledge on to me. I discovered it myself. And that's true for the music itself. But ironically, as pop culture icons, little did I know that I was introduced to and was a Beatle fan without even knowing about their music or really knowing who or what they were. And let me explain that. Like I said, the Beatles were around when I was a very little kid. You know, but, and I, but I wasn't listening to the radio. I wasn't, I wasn't into what was going on, but the Beatles were so popular. There was so much merchandise around them that on one of my birthday cakes, because their Beatles were just popular, they were just everywhere, and as I said, even my parents didn't listen to them. They didn't have a Beatle album, but they knew who they were because it was impossible not to from 1964 on. The fact is, interesting thing too, is my, the Beatles landed uh, in New York on February 7th, 1964, and appeared on the, on the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th, 1964. My dad's birthday is February 8th, 1964. You know, I mean, he wasn't born there, but my, his, his, you know, obviously he wasn't born in 1964. But, um, uh, but his birthday was February 8th. And I wish I could have known, like, did he even care? I mean, his birthday was right in the middle of the Beatles' arrival in America, which is still a flashpoint in, and in, in not even in pop, in pop culture history anymore, but in history, that's the impact the Beatles have had. And my dad's birthday 
like I said, he was born in 1927, so I'm not saying. But, but his birthday is February 8th. He was celebrating his birthday right in the midst of the Beatles landing and being on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I wonder, did he even know or care? Did it even cross his mind? Because as I said, you know, he by the time the Beatles uh, hit, he wasn't listening to music like that. He was still, a, you know, he's a Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin guy. So I'm, I'm sure that they watched the Beatles. I never really asked. I mean, I, I, I now that you know they've passed away quite a few years. I never really. I wonder if I, I, I wonder if I because they all watched Ed Sullivan. But I just wonder. My dad's birthday was then, and I wonder if did he even did it even register to him in the midst of his birthday that the Beatles had arrived right in the middle where his birthday was. I don't know. But anyway, on one of my birthday cakes as a as a, as a little kid very young, my mom bought these little cake toppers that were the shape of the Beatles. If there's four of them, four individuals, and their heads actually bob. They're like two or three inches high. And you can go online and see, you know, Beatles cake toppers from 1960, whenever. I'm not sure what year they were made. I always remember them they, as I grew up and got older. You know, they were always like on my shelf, like in my bedroom. You know, my at the beginning. You know, your your parents decorate your bedroom for you until you get a little older and you start to like things, and and then you have your own personality. But for the most part, until you're about four, five, or six, your parents pretty much. Now, I don't know how it is today because a six-year-old has their own, you know, oh, you know, they're they're all, you know, encouraged to be themselves, right? But back in when I was a kid, you know, your parents kind of ruled the roost. So you, if I when I look pictures of my bedroom as I was growing up, I can tell when I when my influence began to take hold in my room as to how it was decorated. It's an interesting kind of dynamic. But I can tell. I'm like, okay, I could see now that at the beginning, my mom chose all this stuff. Or my mom and dad chose what was on the wall, the pictures on the wall, what was on the dresser, the, the furniture, the whatever little knickknacks or trinkets were, were around, the dolls, whatever it was in, in, my, in, the, in my room. And then as I continue to see, uh, you know, pictures as i got older i could see okay wait a minute i was moving some of their stuff out and moving more of my stuff in and by nine or ten that room was me that room wasn't them anymore but back then i do remember growing up and seeing these four little things and not these four little statues these four little figures they're always on a on a shelf or somewhere in my room on a dresser and they were just kind of always there. I ne- they never even occurred to me. And then as I got older, I go, wait a minute. These are the Beatles. Oh, my God. Mom, did you know you bought me the Beatles? How cool is this? And then I'm like, these are, these, are, these are something to collect. These are something to save. And I still have them today. Still have them. And they're in great shape. I have always coveted them. When I, when I, when I realized then as I got a little older, you know, 10 or 11, I said, wait a minute, these are the Beatles. 
And then I took very good care of them, and they have made, they have stayed with me for most of my life. <laughs> now that I think about it. And then there was another thing on my shelf that I always played with. In the in the late sixties, there were these uh, these these like metal toys, cars that were uh, reproductions of uh, cars, famous cars from movies or television. The company was called Corgi. I believe it was a, a British company. And uh, I had the Batmobile, and I had the Monkey's car, and I had the Green Hornet car, and um, and I had Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and I had, now I didn't buy these, right? My mom bought these for me. And I had the Yellow Submarine, the Beatles Yellow Sub. they made a, a Corgi Back in the 60s, um, this metal thing, you clicked it and you clicked on both sides and John and Paul popped out on one side and George and Ringo on the other. And when you rolled it, the little periscopes moved. I still have it. It still works. It's still in really good condition. I did play with it. I don't have the box. I'm sure if I had the box, it would be worth $1,000 probably. And I don't have the box, so it's probably not worth as much. But my point is, I played with the Beatles' Yellow Submarine when I was a little kid. I didn't even know who the Beatles were. But it was just a cool-looking little toy to play with. I did remember, I do, I, one of my favorite movies was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So I knew Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but I didn't really know. I wasn't singing the song Yellow Submarine. I never saw the film. It was the cartoon. It was some psychedelic thing. I would never have seen that. But it, the Beatles were so popular at that time that... I was given this as a gift, whether my mom bought it for me or someone else, because it was like, oh, here, well, this is a little toy. Looks kind of cool for a kid. And so there it was. So I was a Beatle fan long before I even knew I was a Beatle fan. And as I said before, the music itself, I was not introduced to i mean then when i was growing up i started listening as most kids did at that time to top 40 radio am top 40 radio that's what you listen to well the the, the new music they, they, they there was no such thing as an oldie station right then back then there was no oldies there was the music was 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 only a few years old at that time rock and roll was still young so while the Beatles individually as solo artists were releasing songs as Paul McCartney and John Lennon and George Harrison and Ringo Starr, and I was starting to hear some of their solo stuff on the radio in the early to mid-70s, the Beatles themselves really weren't being played on the radio all that much because they, they, they didn't have any new songs. You just listened to Top 40. There, wasn't, there weren't radio stations that played the songs that weren't new anymore that's that was a, a that that became a different uh format it wasn't until the the mid to late 70s where you started to play you know deep cuts or classic rock as it's known now it wasn't considered it wasn't considered classic then it wasn't it wasn't old enough to be classic so my my um my exposure to the beatles really didn't come for a while until maybe my 
you know, late, you know, maybe like 11 or 12 or my early teens. You know, and by that time, you know, they were probably broken up for seven or eight, nine years. But that was when I really started to, to discover them. In fact, one of the things that was key, it's, it's funny to admit it, but one of the key things that, that was, um, was ex- exposed me to a great deal of the Beatles, and not just the, the big hits you always heard on the you know, Yellow Submarine or you know, I Want to Hold Your Hand and things like that, but deeper on a album cuts. The movie was horrendous, but the, the, the album wasn't you know the soundtrack to this movie wasn't that great but the song selection was and i went to see the movie a couple of times and i bought the 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 soundtrack album and while the versions aren't all that great i was exposed to these songs and hearing these songs was enough for me to go let me hear what the beatles sounded like the film was called Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band, and it starred Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees. It came out in 1978. It's really a horrible film in terms of its storyline and and uh, you know the people in it. Um, but the songs that they chose to feature in that film, and some of the versions are ridiculous, but some are actually very good. Aerosmith does come together. A, a, almost the definitive cover version of that. Earth, Wind, and Fire does Got to Get You Into My Life, a very good version of that. Robin Gibbs sings Oh Darling from Abbey Road. Uh, so there's some credible versions, but at the very least, I was being exposed to these songs I had never heard. They were deep cuts on Abbey Road and on Let It Be and on and on Sgt. Pepper that I'd never heard. I, up to that point, really just knew the hits of the Beatles. In 1973, uh, Capitol Records put out uh, two double albums of the the best of the Beatles from 1967 to 1970, and 1970 to ni- or 1963 to to 1967, and 1967 to 1970. And that was my real introduction to the Beatles and, 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 and the depth of my Beatles. But I have to say, as crazy as it sounds, I, I owe this horrible movie and this substandard soundtrack of the film, Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Cup Band, as being my first real exposure to the depth of the Beatles catalog that I hadn't heard up to that point that influenced me to go then and start to buy the old Beatles albums, which were considered old at that time, right? And hear the Beatles versions of these songs. So I was probably 11 or 12, and it was the late 70s by the time I became a Beatle fan. But as I said, when I become a fan of something, I become interested in it, then I am all in. I am completely immersed. And so when I became a Beatle fan, then I became a Beatle fan. And over the years, I have continued that, and I've become a huge admirer of John Lennon's. And uh, you know, I've got you know a lot of Beatles memorabilia, and I've done a lot of reading on the Beatles. And um, I've actually uh, I've interviewed Yoko Ono a couple of times. I've been to a Paul McCartney press conference and asked him a question. I've been to a a a, a, um, a press conference 
that Ringo Starr was at when he was uh, the conductor from the Thomas and the Tank Engine show. And I asked him a question. Uh, I've been to a, um, uh, a, a, a kind of a Q&A session that was open to the public with George Martin about 10 or 15, 20 years ago. And I asked him a question there. So I've certainly, I've been to Abbey Road. I've been to Liverpool. I've done a Beatles tour where I went to Pete Best's, who was the first drummer with the Beatles. I, his brother his brother does a tour, a, a personalized tour. And we drove around Liverpool and he took us everywhere and went to his mom's old house where the Casbah Club, where the Beatles as teenagers first got together and first played and even painted on the walls. We went to the, we went to the cemetery where there's the gravestone of of Eleanor Rigby. We went to Strawberry Fields. So, uh, I've certainly earned my Beatles merit badge, I think. And so, to see the Get Back documentary was an amazing revelation. It was something that uh, that I didn't expect, and also I did expect, as I said in the last podcast. Um, you know the, the the background of this is that the Beatles made this, and um, and it really was was kind of a, a a a subjective. We talked about journalism. Well, this was a subjective kind of view, and became sort of the the, the narrative of how they broke up. But if you watch these six hours that Peter Jackson has unearthed from these sixty un, uh, unseen sixty hours of unseen footage, when you look at, if you look at these six hours of this, um, for me it was confirming in many ways, and it was revealing in other ways. It was frustrating. It was insightful. It was exciting. It was compelling. It was it was filled with energy. It was the Beatles. And ultimately, it left me wanting to see more. Uh, the revelations there was that this, you know, this this was filmed in 1969, and yes, the Beatles broke up a year later. This does not show the Beatles breaking up. This this certainly shows the Beatles with some coping problems there's definitely fissures in the group they're definitely maturing there's they're definitely trying to be themselves and trying to to find themselves they're experimenting john lennon was was admittedly you know taking drugs during the time in a heavy way um you find a lot of history there and you find some things that you knew but many things you didn't. But what the the overriding view of this is that yes, the Beatles, when they made this, let it be when they were making this Let It Be album. Yes, they were still a band. They were not breaking up. This movie, the original film, was put out in 1970 after they broke up, and so with the the tension that surrounded it, it was an easy jump to say well clearly this is why they broke up but the irony was they made an album after let it be abbey road may be one of their best if not their best so the let it be sessions which initially were going to be called get back really do not 
show the breakup of the Beatles. What they do show is four guys who are on four different paths is, is maybe the best way to describe it. John Lennon is clearly preoccupied and distracted. He's in love with Yoko Ono. At this time, Yoko's divorce comes through, which means now they can get they can, they can be a couple, not worried about that, and and get married, which they did soon after. So his 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 focus is clearly on on being with Yoko. He's experimenting. He's he's trying to break free of being just a beetle. He wants to find out who John Lennon is. They, you know, they're 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 not thirty yet. They're still in their their late twenties, but. They've been pigeonholed into these, uh, into these personalities, and clearly John is restless. He's always was always restless in his skin, but you could see he's distracted. And you know George Harrison is is just frustrated. He he is blossoming. He wants to, he's blossoming as a songwriter, and he wants to share his. He wants to share his his work. He wants to be a, a, a songwriter. He wants to impress John and and Paul. You feel so sorry for him. That he, it's, it's so frustrating to watch this because you see, you know the history of what happens to George. Right, you know, a year after this was filmed. He puts out a triple album after the bell, the album after the Beatles break up. The album "All Things Must Pass," a triple album because he has so much, so many songs that the Beatles rejected that he puts out them all out at one time on one album, which becomes the number one album. And it just a few months ago was finally released for his fiftieth anniversary, and went back into the top ten. "All Things Must Pass" is a great album. And so many of the songs on that could have been and should have been Beatles songs. But at the time, as much as Paul and John were drifting from the Beatles, they also felt an ownership of the Beatles. And here was young George. He was, you know, Paul's young friend from school. And they never truly embraced and really recognized his true ability and his true talent. And that's sad. Because I believe, when I'm talking about confirming, I've always felt that, and I think I talked about this before, that if Brian Epstein, their manager, hadn't died, I don't think the Beatles would have broken up. And watching this film, I believe that to be even more so now. In fact, Paul McCartney at the time says, we need a father figure. We need, we can't just be aimless. And that's what you get from this. They don't. They don't know how to cope. They don't, there, there is no one calling the shots and they can't call the shots for themselves. They needed someone to have a schedule for them to point in the next direction. They were creatives. Their minds wander, their minds drift. And you can see that. If Brian Epstein hadn't died, I believe the Beatles would not have broken up. The Beatles may have taken a hiatus, they may have made some solo albums for a couple of years, but they would have come back as an entity as the Beatles. There were so many other outside influences about management and disagreements on that. But you can't help but see 
how talented they were individually, but wow, when they gelled together, they were truly unique. And to this day, one takeaway from this is if John was distracted, what you have to, and I've always, once again, when I talk about confirming, Paul McCartney is scarily talented. His, his musical talent is scary. Even though he can't read or write music, he has melodies flowing through him. They're just in him. It's genetic. It's in him. And whether it was fostered by his father who played the piano and the, and the dance hall kind of music, which you hear that influence throughout John's or Paul's entire career, many of the Beatles songs have that, that, that throwback music hall kind of sound, whether it's Obla Dio Blada or Lady Madonna or uh, Martha My Dear or Maxwell Silverhammer. They all have that that bouncy piano that was was in a music hall somewhere or in a pub but but you could but you can't deny just how talented Paul McCartney is whether you like him or not his music and some people say oh you know it's kind of lightweight the man has melodies flowing through him there's one scene where a lot of people are arguing or they're having side conversations and Paul is in the corner by himself by the piano, and I'm watching this, I'm saying, hey, wait a minute, folks. While you guys aren't paying attention, he is composing Let It Be. Those are the chords of Let It Be. He's just fiddling around, and he's writing one of the greatest songs of all time, and no one's even paying attention. And he doesn't even know what he's doing, really. You see the genesis of the song Get Back, which was really just Paul sitting initially for about 10 minutes and strumming on his bass. And just strumming and and kind of humming words. And to his credit, Peter Jackson just keeps the camera. You're watching 10 minutes of strumming. But what's important in that 10 minutes of strumming is that while he's just strumming and repeating and repeating, repeating, suddenly you hear the song Get Back start to take shape. And he's... All of a sudden saying, get back, get back, get back to where... And it's, he's, it, 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 you're seeing the birth of a song that's very rare. And that's one thing about this documentary. The rare creative and artistic work that's being done. Rarely have we seen... Artists at work creating their work, and you see it here. Six hours. It's long. There's no question. At times, it's tedious. But Peter Jackson, the director who did Lord of the Rings, is smart enough and instinctual enough to know that I have to show. I've got rare opportunity here. This is rare footage. We are seeing the sauces being made. We are seeing creativity being born it's as if you're watching da vinci starting to do the first sketches of the mona lisa that's what's happening here these songs that are so well known to us long and winding road get back let it be 
you see them being written as, and they're, they're, they're literally the first time when their chords were being put together. And you see Paul, you know, not knowing where the next line for the long and winding road or let it be should be. And the funny thing is, that's why I say it's frustrating because we all know what the next line is, but they don't know it yet. There's a great scene where they're, when they're writing Get Back and they're, they're, they're trying to figure out what's Sweet Loretta Martin's name going to be. They're saying Sweet Loretta, is it Morgan, is it Marshall? They're, 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 they're trying to find what sounds right. And you're, you're here going, it's going to be Martin. But they don't know it yet. That's amazing insight to watch that. That is rare. So if you're a Beatles fan, let it the Get Back Sessions, this documentary, is a must-see. There's no question about it. But even if you're not a Beatles fan, if you're a fan of the arts in any way, you owe it to yourself to watch this and stick with it because you will be seeing art being created. What we take for granted today, these songs that, that have become a, a part of our fabric, that we've just all, we think they've always existed in our minds, well, they haven't. And this documentary shows you when they were born, when they were created. Another revelation, which I think is important, is that the Get Back documentary proves or disproves a very unfair and long-held notion and narrative that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles. If you watch this, Yoko Ono is not some dragon lady who is imposing her will over the sessions or even over John Lennon. To the contrary, yes, she's there. Yes, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird situation to have Yoko sitting next to John reading a newspaper while the Beatles are all writing and playing. I could see why that was an uncomfortable situation. But she's not overly obtrusive. And John, as I said before, thoroughly in love. And even Paul makes a mention of it. He's like, hey, you know what? I I understand it, it is an odd situation, but at the end of the day, he's in love. He wants to be around her. And I guess, you know... We have, to, we have to respect that. I, they don't have to like it, but they, they have to respect it. And the other side of the coin is, what we see here is that Paul brought Linda, who was not his wife at the time. He brought Linda Eastman, his girlfriend, to the sessions. And she was there. In fact, one, in one of the episodes, she brings her little young daughter there, who is completely in the way making noise, running around. Why didn't she get blamed for breaking up the Beatles? So I think finally, after 50 years, Yoko Ono finally gets her day. 
Did she have an influence over John? Were they inseparable? Were they like little kids? Did John depend on her like a mother? There's no doubt. Does Yoko have a strong personality? Yes. But did she break up the Beatles? Not like she was accused of during this. She's there, but her her imprint print is is not divisive here. And I would argue that Linda is around just as much. But why didn't Linda get skewered and being blamed for breaking up the Beatles? So I think Yoko actually gets some long overdue vindication. If you watch the entire six hours and three parts, you realize Yoko didn't break up the Beatles. The Beatles broke up the Beatles, whether they were right or wrong. We see George Martin, who had played such an important role in the Beatles' sound as the producer, right from the beginning, from their first album, you, you, when you watch this and you know that Brian Epstein is dead and you know that they're kind of, as Paul said, aimless and they're rudderless here and they're looking for some kind of direction and someone to help steer them, you wish that George Martin would have played a larger role. But George Martin, you have to know historically, was a little gun-shy at this point too. Because while he had a lot of power, early in their careers because he was calling the shots and they were young kids just looking for a break not you know 5 years later now they are the beatles and john was not a big fan of george martin later on he 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 wanted the beatles to be more stripped down as much as sergeant pepper elevated the beatles to a whole new level of popularity and influence and importance in the pop culture. John also felt like the album was overproduced. There was a lot of George Martin sounds and tricks and and gimmicks. And after Sgt. Pepper in 1967, you see the the, the remaining albums, especially the White Album and Let It Be, which were made in 68 and 69, are more stripped down. And just more recorded as they are, organic, with not a lot of bells and whistles. And so I think George Martin was a little hesitant. He was around, he was floating around, you see him around, but he's not the strong force. And sadly, if he had, I mean, but I, I don't blame him for not at the time, but once again, historically, when you look, you see they needed that father figure, and he was probably the closest one that could have played that role, but, but he was marginalized. And you wish that maybe he could have stepped up, but but then you realize that he really he really couldn't and that's what makes this frustrating when you when you see that there are as i said many times when you you see the songs uh just you know come out of nowhere and 
and you you marvel, and then you see the the director of the film who's filming this this uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg who is constantly badgering them. He's trying to make a movie. They're trying to make a record. They decided they made an arbitrary thing that they were gonna they were gonna record. You know they're gonna write, you know. 14 new songs in less than a month and, and record the album and, 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 and put on a show. You know, they were trying to do a superhuman artistic and creative project for any, even if they were at their peak, that would have been difficult. But here, they, there were fissures here. There were breaks. There was restlessness. There's a point where John or, or George, one of my... It, it it was it was so poignant. George is being continually kind of brushed aside by Paul and John. They're not really helping him. He's asking for help on a, how to finish a song or finish a lyric. They're not. They're just really not giving him the respect and the attention that we now know he certainly deserved. And in fact, he quits the band for about a week. And you don't blame him because you see the way they're treating him. He does come back. But there's one point where Ringo and Paul are out of the room and he's just talking to John and he says, well, you know, I've got like 20 songs. And, it, you know, if I only get one or two songs an album, it's going to take me 20 years to get these all out. So I think I'm just going to put out a solo album so I can get rid of these songs that I have that I want to get out that you guys obviously don't want. And then we can focus on the Beatles. And, and John is completely perplexed by that. He says, you, you mean an album of your own? And George is like, well, yeah, because I mean, I've got all these songs. You know, John and Paul were still, even though they were, they were drifting and looking to, for their own identities, they still were in the mindset that whatever they wrote were for the Beatles. It was George who said, I think we could do some solo stuff and then we could still come back and do Beatles stuff. And apparently Peter Jackson talked to Paul McCartney after, the, after he had his, 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 his version of this. And he says, what did you think of that? You know, because Paul and Ringo weren't in the room. Paul says, I never heard that conversation. I didn't know that George said that, and I wish I had. Because if I had heard that, it may have changed my perspective. Meaning that when Paul put out his solo album, which signaled the end of the Beatles, officially, it almost said, Paul, at this point, is 50 years later, says, you know what? If I would have known that George wanted to put out a solo album, but he also felt that he wanted to do that but still wanted to still stay in the Beatles, that the Beatles could still be an entity and we still could put out solo things, it sounds like Paul would have said, I probably wouldn't have broken up the Beatles. But once again, without that, that voice of reason that, that, um, that, that Brian Epstein or maybe George Martin could have provided without that being there, they're creative types. They're flighty at times. They're not well thought out. They're not always well focused. And 
They had little birds chirping in their ears of people that hung out with them in their own entourages and who were telling them what they wanted to hear or people that had their own agendas like Alan Klein who later became their their manager and there was a rift over that so you 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 find some revelations here that even the Beatles didn't even know existed and that could have changed history. The sad, the frustrating and the sad part of the Get Back documentary is that we see that history could have been changed. We're screaming for somebody to explain to these guys what they could be doing and should be doing, but nobody steps up because everybody at the end of the day is afraid to... To be that voice, first of all, it would have to be someone that they would all respect, and that was a hard person to find at that time in their in their careers and in their personal lives. And the other people that were around in their inner circle, they didn't want to look like they were going to rock the boat. They had they they were comfortable in their own little role, and they were going to ride this for as long as they could. But you see, a few people floating around and you say wow why couldn't someone there have spoken up because the beatles didn't need to break up i've always stated that and this documentary i believe confirms that yes they could have done outside projects george harrison now we know even said they didn't have to break up but there was no one there to provide that kind of insight. The funny thing you find out, too, is that we all know why Ringo Starr was always a friend to all of them. Ringo, I, I have great respect for Ringo because he's always been very comfortable in his own skin. John Lennon was never comfortable in his own skin. As I said, George Harrison was very frustrated um, creatively, Paul, as I said earlier in the other podcast, was the, always the biggest Beatle fan. He wanted the Beatles to be together. He wanted them to be important. And he was frustrated. He became the de facto leader when he didn't want to be. But no one else was was stepping up. The funny thing is, during since I've watched these uh this up these um the documentary all three of them i've gone back and i've listened to all the beatles albums all 13 but not in the official albums not some of the u.s releases or the greatest hits but just the the, the original studio albums there's 13 but i listened in backward chronological order from abbey road well from let it be to abbey road all the way to their first album, Please Please Me. And what you find, if you listen to it that way, what was interesting was that you see the way they were drifting apart. By the end, they're a group in kind of name only. Their songs are theirs, and then they're blending them with everyone else, but they're basically written by by each other. You know, George Harrison 
was writing something at this time. It's in the. It's in. There's the. He's trying to find, you know, and something in the way she moves. It's 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 there. He wrote this thing years before. It's in. The, it's in this documentary. But by listening to it backward, the funny thing is, if you listen to the first couple three Beatles albums, John Lennon, and, and it was his band, the the Quarrymen and the Silver Beatles, and then the Beatles. It was his band. He asked Paul McCartney to join. And, George, and, John, and Paul brought George in. But you hear the first three or four albums, certainly the first three. John is prominent. This is John's band. John is singing lead on most of the songs. And Paul, you start to hear, becomes a little more prominent in the fourth album, Beatles for Sale. And then on Rubber Soul, and then on Revolver, and he's taking more of a lead. It's, it seems as, as, as almost as if when he wrote Yesterday, that was a turning point for him and everyone else in the band, like, whoa, okay. But this was John's band, and and but you see at the end of the Beatles' career, Paul is the dominant force, and you see it in this Let It Be session, in this Get Back documentary paul is the major creative force paul is the driving force he's pushing this project forward musically philosophically creatively but early on it was john lennon so you see that that's really helped me understand uh by listening to their their entire catalog and doing it in reverse order at the early days of the beatles this was john's band no doubt about it. He's singing the lead on many songs, or there, and um, his voice is prominent. And at the end, Paul is prominent. When you listen, and George, John is there, but it's Paul and George that are driving the train. John still makes his has his moments, even on the Abbey Road. Come together, that's John Lennon. But something. And here comes the sun. That's George Harrison. Oh, darling. That's Paul McCartney. So there's an interesting dichotomy. And you see it here. You see how John is distracted. You see how, uh, how John is, 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 is there, but he's not there. But uh, at the end of the day... Uh, I just wanted more, and it, it you know the the get then the get back sessions and this entire film ends as it should with their famous rooftop concert. Throughout this entire process, they're they're debating and arguing, and they're they once again they're aimless. They don't really have a good idea. They want some some want to do a, a big show, some don't. They don't know where they, they're going to go to, uh, you know, the Middle East and do it in some ruins, or they're going to do it somewhere in England, or they're going to do it on a boat, on a on a yacht, on, on a cruise ship. There's all crazy different ideas, and, and they, these ideas go from, as I said before, going to the Middle East and you know, in some ruins on, on a mountain, or on a, on a cruise ship boat for a week, 
And it ends up that they wind up going just upstairs from where they're recording on the roof. So it goes from some huge, major project to just four guys and a couple of amps on a roof. But it's a poignant moment because Paul actually is a little gun-shy. John wants to play. John was always a performer and always a rocker. Paul was a little gun-shy, as George was. But when they start playing on the roof, and it's the first time they've really played for any people or any, in the public in any way in three years since they, they stopped playing concerts in 1966, by the second or third song, Paul is totally into it. John is into it very quickly, and George gets into it. But Paul, you could see, starts kicking his legs, and he's just like, wow, this is cool. And that's what's so sad about it and frustrating is that we see how much they were enjoying being the Beatles. This is not the breakup of the Beatles. That is not, this is the narrative that we've been fed for 50 years, and that's the great revelation here. This was not the breakup of the Beatles because if you see, the last you see of them, is on that rooftop, playing together, looking at each other, smiling, going, wow, they're into it. They are enjoying being the Beatles again. Because the Beatles were not, first, a recording band. The Beatles were a performing band. And it's when they perform together on a stage for people, is when they became alive. And you could see that in their playing and in their faces in this film. And that's how it ends. And that's why it's also frustrating because it ends on, on a euphoric note and you say they didn't need to break up. That is the one line that keeps just going through my head. They did not need to break up. And, you know, the, the, the Let It Be album is very controversial. You see it being recorded and, uh, and created here. It's, it, it, is, it is not highly regarded. It was the last album that they released, not the last album they recorded. But it, 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 it historically is viewed as the Beatles' last album because it was the last one that was released. And Paul McCartney was very upset after it later. Now, a lot of that may have been influenced by the bitterness of the breakup. But while it was supposed to be a stripped-down album, then they weren't happy with it. And John Lennon brought in Phil Spector, who's known for his wall of sound and using strings and layers of instruments and Phil Spector went in and overdubbed a lot of strings and other types of things, which John, right, said he didn't want George Martin's trickery, but then he didn't mind Phil Spector's trickery, right? <laughs> so once again, try to figure out an artist. But Paul has long um, resented the Let It Be album, especially for the the heavy orchestration that 
Phil Spector put on the long and winding road, which apparently Paul never okayed and never heard until it was on the album and released. In fact, in what two th- in the early 2000s, it was such a thorn in his side that they rele- the Beatles officially released a version of Let It Be called Let It Be Naked. Let It Be dot 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 naked, which was the stripped down versions of the songs without any of the Phil Spector overdubs. That's how much Paul just wanted to get those songs done the way he wanted them, uh, you know, without Phil Spector, the way he wanted and the way he heard, he heard them in his head. But I also say it's a little sour grapes because Paul makes it sound, oh, well, you know, George, you know Phil Spector ruined the songs with all this thick um, orchestration and the harp and all that. But at the same time, if you go back, as I just did, listening to their, their entire um, body of work, long before Phil Spector came, many of Paul's songs are filled, and Beatles songs are filled with lush orchestrations and harps. Many of Paul's songs are filled with orchestral arrangements. So when you listen to Long and Winding Road, it doesn't sound all that bad when you listen to it in the context of the previous Beatles music, which Paul okayed, which he was involved in when George Martin produced it. But because John brought in Phil Spector and they did this without Paul's consent, he doesn't like it. But if you listen to all the earlier Beatles songs and the Paul McCartney songs, you know, uh, Eleanor Rigby, Yesterday, so many of their songs filled, you know, the song Good Night, which Paul and John wrote for Ringo, is filled with, it's, 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 it's as schmaltzy uh, an orchestral arrangement as anything else. Well, why was that okay? Because Paul was involved. On Long and Winding Road, he wasn't. So once again, you have to take some of that with a, with a, with a grain of salt too. But as I said, but that is all in this that's all part of this these little stories and these little things about the way the band was in 1969 in january and we are both um we are both engaged because we know the outcome and as i said before we are so sad and we are frustrated after it because we know the output and I just have to say that at the end of the day, I wanted to see so much more. There's more, there's more footage. Apparently, Peter Jackson's initial director's cut, after looking at the 60 hours, was 18 hours long. And they cut it down to six. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm ready to watch the 18-hour director's cut. And if that doesn't tell you how good it is, then I don't know what does. If you love the Beatles, if you like the Beatles, if you're interested in the arts, you will see the Beatles in a way you've never seen them before. At the very least, as a fan of the arts, you will see the creative process presented in a way that has been rarely offered 
you will see art being created. One way or the other, it's a must-see. And it's the Beatles. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast, we are there. And don't forget to send a message, send a link, tell your friends, tell your family, tell anyone who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 290. I'm Jim Toronto. I am here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of the web to your screen. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves. I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> <laughs>